So we read Psalm 5. Going to look tonight at half of it, God willing, and the other half next week, but we'll read the whole psalm. Psalm of contrasts, as we'll see. Psalm 5, to the chief musician, with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favour you will surround him as with a shield. This is God's word. As I say, we can look at the first half of it tonight. Uh, I didn't realise until really, well, sometime last week, I began to see uh, that this actually uh, fits in quite well with what I was saying on Sunday evening, for those of you who are there, um, when we were looking at prayer in faith and prayer to God, who is our loving Heavenly Father. And of course, that is the title which the Lord Jesus told us to call God by a, a new revelation, as it were. The, in the new covenant, uh, the, the way we can approach God is straight to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we often will start our prayers, won't we? Our Heavenly Father, our Father in Heaven. And of course that's right. But is that the only title we should use? And I think the answer has to be No. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught us to pray that, is a, a template. How shall I pray? And we are meant to, to fill it out uh, each day uh, 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 when we pray and you expand it. And one thing we can expand is the title at the beginning. Because David piles up titles here. O Lord, my King, my God. One of the great things that happened at the Reformation was that a lot of people were saved. And, of course, they, like we, would suddenly realise that they could come to God and that he was their loving Heavenly Father. Uh, That the Catholic teaching by medieval times of God was someone who was afar off and stern and just a judge and you just feared him and he didn't, uh, you know, you you just didn't have much hope with God, really. And suddenly people were saved and they, 
and they have, as we have in those days, the spirit of adoption, uh, as Paul says it, by which we call Abba Father. And from the heart, people are, are calling God Father. But there was a danger which that led to. I go back to the historical days because you can see why in the contrast of what happened. People were... Martin Luther certainly thought people were being too familiar with God sometimes, rushing into his presence. He said, you are not to treat God like a shoemaker's clerk's apprentice. And now the picture has to be unpacked. You can imagine the medieval shop, and you turn up, perhaps you've only got one decent pair of shoes, and something's happened to them, so you're wearing your old ones, and you turn up. The shoemaker's in the back of the shop, mending shoes. At the front is his clerk, writing down who whose shoes they are except he's not he's at lunch or whatever so his apprentice is sitting there so we're talking about medieval society in germany and this man would have been considered pretty low down on the social scale probably a boy and you can imagine someone going in and plonking their shoes down on the desk and saying palmer do them by five o'clock and going out and and Luther was concerned, people, he said people are treating God like that, as if you just turn up, say what you want, and expect him to do it for you. And this ver, this, what is here is, a, is an antidote to thinking like that, isn't it? What does David say of God? He says, give ear to my words, O Lord. See, as we, as we come to the one who is our heavenly father, we need to realise that's his relationship to us. But before that relationship... He is, well, many th- many titles you can use of God, but the three of them that are here. The first is, O Lord. What does Lord mean? It's I am. It means, first of all, that he is the eternal God. And because he is the God who is from eternity to eternity, he is the God who has created all things. And because he has created all things, he is sovereign ruler over all things. So, The word Lord brings that idea. But of course it always also brings the idea of unchangingness when we have uh, that uh, title is given by the Lord to Moses at the burning bush, chapter 3 and verse 14 of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is the name by which the children of Israel shall call me. I am has sent me to you. He is the unchanging God because he is the Lord. And therefore, verse 15, you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. God made his name, the I am, the covenant name for God's people under the old covenant. To say, you think about the nations, You think about their gods. You think about the ones who even have one supreme god, like Baal. And you remember how different I am. I am the eternal. I am the creator. I am the ruler of all. I am the unchanging one. And I am the God who has entered into covenant with you, my people. And so when David, you see, is coming here, he is saying he has something of that not saying you think of all those things when you come to the Lord every time you pray, but he has a relationship with the God who, when he thinks about him, he knows that's what he's like, and that so do we. It's the same God, of course. And then David goes on, my king and my God. King, 
Well, David is God's king, probably the way Psalm these Psalms work, that Psalm 5, like the ones around it, where David is in trouble and he's being chased around by Saul. But he is God's anointed king. God has already anointed him. But you see, he submits himself to the greater king. You are my king. So that he's careful when he asks things, to ask things which are right to ask the king. And then he says, my God. And here, of course, we have this, not only the, the covenant in, in a general sense, but someone who is a believer, who knows the Lord, who can say, you are my God. The one who is sovereign, Lord and king, but personally committed to David and for us, of course, personally committed to us in Christ. Go back to the psalm before. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. This personal note comes through. And we have to have the right, to have the, to approach God rightly. We, we need the, the awareness of his transcendence and his greatness and his power and his eternity and who he is, his being. We need to, to be coming to the right God, not a God of our imagination, the real and true and living God. And then we can approach him. Uh, him as our Father in heaven, without rushing into his presence, demanding that he's going to do what we tell him to do. We mustn't rush into the presence of God anyway, must we? As we approach him, what do we do? Well, David says here, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give ear to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. And the idea seems to come over, doesn't it, that David is crying and praying. But again, it's not in an unthinking way. As we approach God, it's, it's good as we come deliberately to approach him in times of prayer. It's good to meditate on who he is. Humbly meditate upon him as we've been looking at this evening. Remember his greatness, remember his holiness Remember his glory. And then to meditate on, and there's many other things you could meditate on, but to meditate on how it is that we can approach him. How can we come to this God? We come to him as our Father in heaven. How do we come to him as our Father in heaven? Because we come in Christ, in the covenant that he has made through the blood of Christ. And so we come thankfully. And then we come meditating on why is it that he should answer us at all? And what is he going to answer? Meditating on what we should cry, what we should pray. And we look at God's word and we have much instruction about what we should cry and what we should pray. And we look at the Lord's Prayer, we look at other prayers in the New Testament, we look at Psalms, we look at other places, and we gain a picture of a God who is very concerned to tell us what to ask for. There's an awful lot of content of prayer in the scripture. Some are individual people in individual situations, which we can, of course, learn from, if there is some parallel with our situation. Others are more general, and when we look, we are to be praying for those things which will advance the glory and honour of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he says that we are to come and pray to the Father 
in his name, which means with his authority, which means doing that which he has commanded us to, to seek. It means coming uh, to advance his cause, to act in someone's name is to do what they would do if they were there. Uh, and that's what we are to do. Uh, and so we, we are to learn, and I'm not going to all course into all this tonight, but, but this, is, this is general, isn't it? We are to, to come humbly, we are to come thankfully, and we are to come thinkingly, if I can use that word, if it probably doesn't exist. Um, but we are to, to meditate on what we are to pray for. We are to think, what, what, what sort of things does God want me to ask for, for me, for others? And we are to be instructed by the word. And so David comes and he prays in words. Verse 3, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. There's many references in the scripture to praying in the morning, uh, which I don't think means, we, we mustn't take things so legalistically. I mean, the first thing you have to do when you open your eyes is to pray. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Uh, but it, it is saying, isn't it, it's a priority. It's a priority of the day. There are many things we need to ask for, for help with, whatever our day will bring forth, the things we know about, the ongoing problems that are still there, which were there when we went to bed, and they're still there in the morning, and they'll still be there at night. And the grace to, 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 to endure things sometimes. And then all the things that might come upon us in the day which you have no clue they're going to happen. And we need grace and we need wisdom and we need God's help uh, to, to deal with these things. And, and, and God has given us night and day as a, a rhythm, hasn't he? And so surely it's right that at the beginning of a day we should be seeking God's help for that day. So David comes in the morning and he says, uh, and he comes certainly as a priority. That's the, the main point anyway. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. He's speaking verbally, isn't he? It's interesting that, uh, and I'm sure I've said this before somewhere, I've said it places, so I've probably said it here, um, that somehow we got into this habit in, in, church, in individual lives uh, of sometimes just praying all the time, just quietly. Well, not quietly, silently. It's interesting in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verses 12 to 13, you don't need to turn it up necessarily, this is Hannah we're talking about here, if you don't want to look it up, you'll know it, where she's praying in the temple, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth, now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard, therefore Eli thought she was drunk, and therefore you would have, wouldn't you, that you get the picture that normally people prayed out loud, even in public. Against that background, the Lord Jesus, when that was certainly still going on in his day, says, look, when you pray to your father, you go into your room and you shut the door and you pray to your father in secret. But that almost implies that you must still be speaking with a voice that can be heard or why do you shut the door? And the idea, and you look at Hannah and you say, well, then it's right. God will hear prayers where we where we, where we not necessarily speaking out loud, where we, as we would say, sub-vocalise, where we, we, we speak words, but there's no sound comes out of our mouth. But it's really helpful to, and I'm sure many of you know this far better than me, but to do that, to, to always, to either speak or at least put everything into words, just like you're talking to someone else, 
because then you have some sort of level of coherent petition. Whereas if you try and do it all just in the mind and never use the mouth, well, in 10 seconds' time, you're thinking about your shopping list or something else, because you, your mind doesn't work like that. If you're not, it just goes off on a stream of consciousness. What David is saying here is, I'm going to cry to you. You're going to hear my voice. You're going to know what I'm asking for. I'm not going to ask incoherent rubbish. I'm going to be asking for particular special things. And the point is that David, as we'll come on to see in a moment, was in a particular situation of great danger. The reason this psalm goes back and forth, if you look at it carefully, between David talking to God and then saying, what about the wicked, is because he was being pursued by the wicked who were trying to kill him. And so David prays verbally, he prays as a priority, and he prays expecting an answer. I will look up. When we looked at the uh, Songs of Ascent in Psalm 123, verse 2, uh, we, we considered this uh, back last year somewhere, wasn't it? And um, where uh, David's, uh, where the, the psalmist says, uh, Psalm 123, and verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. And David here, that's the same picture, I will look up. I'm looking up for God, I'm looking up for you to answer, Lord. And so we need to, to see this great privilege of prayer is something that needs to be as it were, worked at it, it becomes easier, doesn't it? But it's, it, it needs to be something that we, we don't think, I can just talk to God, which we can, what a great blessing. And we're careless about thinking of who it is or what we should ask. Or, and I'm falling into the trap of, I often say, as the children's hymn says, I often say my prayers, but do I really pray? And do the wishes of my heart go with the words I say? I may as well bow down and not worship gods of stone is offered to the living God a, a prayer of words alone for prayer of words without the heart the Lord will never hear now in the remaining time I want to move on to verses 4 and to 6 what is David praying well he doesn't actually tell us here that comes later in the psalm to some extent but the next three verses begin with this word for for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The connection is this. David is saying, I am being pursued by wicked, evil people. And you don't take pleasure in wicked, evil people, Lord. And you exclude them in the end from your presence. But they're pursuing me, therefore I can pray to you. I'm praying to you because I'm not sitting down in a nice easy chair and everything's going swimmingly. I've got real trouble and I know what you think about the wicked Lord so I know what I can pray. And it's quite severe isn't it what he says here uh, and we learn a, a lot don't we of our theology from the passages like this. Here is the Lord. What is the Lord like? The boastful shall not stand in your sight, verse 5. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Four things we're told. The Lord excludes the boastful. We are getting used to hearing people being excluded, aren't we? And, and, and put out and cancelled. 
where the Lord excludes the boast, the, uh, the evil, uh, there it is, sorry, uh, verse 5, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. And that's an explanation of the evil, evil shall not dwell with you. The boastful will not stand, it immediately takes us to the day of judgment, doesn't it? And who will stand on the day? And then he goes on, you hate all workers of iniquity. And that's a phrase that echoes to us, doesn't it, from the Lord Jesus Christ saying to the false prophets, Sermon on the Mount, you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, Matthew 7 and verse 3, 23. And then you have the liars, you uh, shall destroy those who speak falsehood. And in Revelation 21 and verse 8, in contrast to those who are dwelling in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, we have the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God, here, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Two of these words are about what God does, excluding and destroying, and two are about his attitude, his heart attitude, hating and abhorring. And this is Hebrew poetry, so you could really, I, I believe, just change the, the order and, and mix any one of these verbs with, 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 its, with its object. You can say, to sum it up, uh, the boastful and workers of iniquity and those who speak falsehood and are bloodthirsty and deceitful, will not stand in God's sight. He will destroy them because he hates them and he abhors them. Now David, you see, is looking at real people around him. And so are we. And we have to have this perspective, don't we, of this is what the Lord will one day do. This is how he acts. Because this is who he is. There has been too much in churches as a whole, I hope not here, of the sentimentality which says, oh, you must hate the sinner and love the sinner. Well, you love the sinner in terms of you do good, you, you, do, you love, indeed, anybody, including those who persecute you. But if we're talking about a heart attitude, well, God hates the character of the sinner. And so must we. We are not to find sinners congenial company, are we? I'm going to say more about this on Sunday morning, God willing, uh, when it talks about love for the brothers and hatred. You know, if you are someone who, when you have the choice, you spend all your time with sinners and you don't really want to turn up and come to church and, to, and meet with God's people or somewhere else, it, it, when you, if you have the choice, you know, here you are, there's the church, there's the pub, you're walking down the road, which one am I going to? Where do I feel most at home? You know, that's, that's the test of the heart, isn't it? That's the test of the soul. And we must say God does not love with a love of complacency, the sinner, the love of saying, they're all right, they're fine. I love them. That, of course, is so much of the error that's being taught these days, isn't it? That God will love everyone, meaning however sinful someone's lifestyle is, however condemned it is by the word, but God accepts them as they are. We know that when we come to Christ, God accepts us as we are, but not to leave us as we are. 
because he still hates sin. And while that sin is interwoven into our being because we are unrepentant sinners, he is hating us as well. He may in his sovereign love interpose and save us, but his hatred is towards what is in our hearts. But we are told, aren't we here? We're given a hint by David. He is, he is going to pray, uh, and he does pray, but his first thought is about the people around him and, and what does the Lord think of these people? And it takes him on in faith to the fact that they will indeed be destroyed by the Lord. And that should be our hope, shouldn't it? And our wish. And if that is our hope and our wish, it will be fulfilled. Second Peter 3 and verse 12, where it says, um, we are to look forward and hasten the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, only righteousness, where the wicked, as Job says, cease from troubling and are no more. And that is still our hope, isn't it? And we are living in days, and I hope to come on to this next week, verses 9 and 10 are so applicable, aren't they, to what is going on around us. Uh, to go on, uh, to just to encourage us again to keep trusting God, keep praying to God, keep keep on keeping on, and looking forward, and knowing that we don't have to say, well, perhaps these people who are hating us as Christians, they'll they'll be there in heaven, and they won't, unless they've repented, and God one day will destroy His enemies, and will be vindicated, and so shall we. And we need to know that. But now we need to be also saying, oh, that's all right then. No. Imitating David. In, uh, he's a king, but he's praying earnestly to God. And so must we be in our daily struggles.